You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Center Studios of Messiah College, where hopefully we don't qualify as a temple to the marketplace here in Grantham, Pennsylvania. This is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome, everyone, to episode 51 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Today, Drew, we are going to talk about the relationship between religion and the marketplace in American history. This is a new topic for us, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I think you actually may be right, and we have a great guest to shape our discussion today. I recently read Nicole Kirk's fascinating book, Wanamaker's Temple, The Business of Religion in an Iconic Department Store. Now, some of our older listeners might remember Wanamaker's stores and their flagship location on 13th and Market in Philadelphia. But what many people don't know is that Wanamaker himself was a devout evangelical Protestant, and he saw his stores, especially his flagship store in Philly, as a means of advancing a white middle-class gospel of salvation and social reform in the city of brotherly love for most of the 20th century. Hearing this story, and I'm not familiar with Wanamaker's myself, but hearing this story, I'm getting kind of whiffs of of how I perceive Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A in the present day. Yeah, sort of a retail with a side of evangelical gospel, right? Exactly. Yeah, I want to ask Kirk about that and see if we're making those connections accurately. Uh, The Wanamaker's vision was much, much more highbrow than like a Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A. Kirk's book really does fit into a growing historical literature on religion and commerce uh, in the 20th century, especially evangelicals and commerce. I'm thinking here of Bethany Morton's book on religion and Walmart and Darren Grem's book on Chick-fil-A. And now uh, Notre Dame professor Darren Dochuk has a new book coming out on evangelicals and the oil industry. The book is entitled Anointed with Oil. I love Ooh, that title. That's That's got layers. Yeah. You're from the kind of extended Philadelphia environs, right? Or at the, least I went to school there. Yeah. yeah. Were you familiar with Wanamaker before you uh, read Kirk's book? Yeah, that's interesting that you asked that question. I guess it was about 15 years ago. It's probably when you were a student, Drew. I taught a senior honors seminar at Messiah College. It's the only senior honors seminar I've ever taught. Note that he taught this while I was a student here, yet I was not in the senior well, honors seminar. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, Drew. <laughs> Uh, It was on consumerism. And one of the books I assigned was William Leach's book, The Land of Desire. If you get a chance to read Land of Desire, it's a fascinating study of how Wanamaker brought what Leach calls this quest for pleasure, security, comfort, and material well-being to middle-class America. And what Kirk does, I think, is pick up on a lot of these themes and really develops them even further. 
So uh, after you read Nicole Kirk's book on Wanamaker um, and you still you know, need to feed that hunger for Wanamaker, pick up uh, William Leach, Land of Desire. Uh, again, this, I think, is going to be a fascinating conversation. We will get to Nicole Kirk here shortly, but before we do that, we have our own sort of marketplace things to handle here. Uh, Drew, tell our listeners how they can connect with our product <laughs> here at The Way of Improvement Leads Home. Yes, our, our, our booming business here. That's at, right. Yeah. At the Way of Improvement. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Richard Green, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group, a history, museum, and nonprofit consulting firm providing community-focused engagement strategies for institutional planning, organizational assessments, and interpretive direction. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com, click support. And again, best way to spread the word is to just spread it, to, to grab someone by the collar and say, have you listened to this podcast yet? Your life is not being fulfilled until this podcast is, is in your feed. Smash subscribe. Get on it. Right? Word of Smash, mouth. Smash subscribe? Yeah, that's a I don't know. I've been, I've been listening a, to other podcasts. That's that say a thing? That. That's a thing. Thank you so much, everyone who listens. Um, you know, we also have a Patreon account, so head over to Patreon, support us at either the one, five, ten, or twenty dollar a month level. We still have mugs and books and all kinds of things for our patrons. So please, um, we could really use your your help, especially as we transition into our next season. We could use your help and support uh, here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. So we will get to our interview with Nicole Kirk in a minute. Before that, John, you have a little bit of commentary for us. The Wanamaker building still sits on 13th and Market Street in Philadelphia. Today, it is a Macy's department store. As Nicole Kirk writes, Wanamaker sought to convert retail business into a moral, ethical, Christian endeavor by changing and promoting new business practices. From the Philadelphia store's architecture to the ritual use of space, from art and educational exhibits to employee education programs and their physical presentation, Wanamaker understood his department store and his employees as an extension of his religious work. Wanamaker stores would bring religion and moral reform to the city of Philadelphia, a place with a long-standing commitment to this kind of social improvement. As we prepared for this episode and I thought about Wanamaker's vision and his commercial temple, if you will, at 13th and Market, I was reminded of another famous Philadelphian, William Penn, a 37-foot-tall and nearly 27-ton statue of the founder of Pennsylvania has sat atop City Hall since 1894. Until 1985, the city forbade any building in Philadelphia from rising above Penn's hat. From his spot on top of City Hall, Billy Penn looks down upon Wanamaker's temple to Protestantism and consumerism. Perhaps some might think that Penn would not be happy with the fact that Wanamaker's department store blended economic gain and spiritual reflection. The Quakers, after all, have been portrayed as simple people, 
men and women who shunned wealth and tried to live lives defined by simplicity. But such a portrayal is only partially true. For every John Woolman or Benjamin Lay, Quaker prophets who railed against slavery and materialism, there were probably 10 Quaker merchants and store owners who saw absolutely no tension between, to quote historian Frederick Tall's, the meeting house and the counting house. There were a lot of very rich Quakers in early Philadelphia, including William Penn and his family. Penn was a master salesman, a businessman who wrote marketing copy to promote his product, the Holy Experiment. Quaker merchants on Front Street sold slaves and transported grain from the hinterland to the West Indies. As the saying goes, Quakers prayed P-R-A-Y-E-D, for their enemies on Sunday, but prayed, P-R-E-Y-E-D, on their enemies during the rest of the week. They bought large tracts of land in the countryside to provide economic security for their children so that they would have the financial wherewithal to live comfortable lives that would encourage the passing of their faith to the next generation. As historian Barry Levy has taught us, The Quakers, with their middling pursuit of comfort and security, are the real source of the American middle-class family. The accumulation of wealth through the marketplace would allow Quakers to advance moral improvement in their city through the construction of schools, meeting houses, charitable organizations, and other institutions of social reform. This makes Wanamaker and his store an extension of the ideals that drive the Quaker City and that have always driven the Quaker City. Not a break from Penn's experiment. Penn no doubt looks down on the Wanamaker building and smiles. Dr. Nicole Kirk is a historian of American religious history. She joined the faculty of Meadville Lombard Theological School in 2012 after earning her Ph.D. in American church history at Princeton Theological Seminary. She is the first to hold the Schoolman Chair of Unitarian Universalist History. Her current research focuses on American religious history in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Her research interests include business, religion, technology, as well as material and visual culture in the 19th and 20th centuries. Dr. Kirk was a part of the editorial board and a contributor to the two-volume set Documentary History of Unitarian Universalism, and she's currently working on a book tentatively titled Railroad Religion, The Religious Worlds of Railroad Barons and Their Workers, a book which explores the complex and surprising ways the construction of railroads and the wealth they produce transformed American religion. Our interview today focuses on our first book, Wanamaker's Temple, The Business of Religion in an Iconic Department Store, published from New York University Press in October of 2018. Our guest on this episode of the podcast is Dr. Nicole Kirk. She is the author of a fascinating new book entitled Wanamaker's Temple, The Business of Religion in an Iconic Department Store, published last October with New York University Press. Nicole, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Now, for those unfamiliar with John Wanamaker, it was funny, Drew, I asked my Pennsylvania history class, uh, we were talking about Philadelphia today for some reason, and this came up. I said, how many of you have ever heard of John Wanamaker? And 
you know, it was kind of not many, you know, maybe half a hand went up or something. But who was John Wanamaker? Tell us a little bit about this guy for those who maybe are not from the East Coast or don't, you know, remember or too young to remember his department stores. Um, you know, who was this man? Well, the reason that I wrote the book and we would even be having this conversation is that he started one of the great department stores on the East Coast, right. Wanamaker's. Uh, and today it's still, the building is still there, but it's uh, a Macy's, uh, but for generations of Philadelphians and actually up and down the Eastern seaboard, it was uh, very much a destination kind of store, much like Ikea is now today. Uh, people would go to Wanamaker's department store to go shopping. And so he's known as this person who, who founded this store. And in fact, it had uh, branch stores and other locations over time. Uh, but that's what he's most famous for. Now, of course, his backstory is also a part of the interest. Right. Tell us a little bit about that, his sort of religious background. And, you know, we'll, we'll dive a little deeper into this as we move on with the interview. But obviously your book is about how he brings kind of commerce and consumerism to bear on his religious life. Tell us a little bit about Wanamaker's religious background. Certainly. He was born in 1838 in a section of Philadelphia that was considered rural at the time, just fields and marshes. And now when you walk around that part of the city, it's very much at the core of Philadelphia, uh, this area called Gray's Ferry. And he grew up uh, in a very religious household. His grandfather and his father were lay Methodist preachers. Uh, when a local uh, group of Lutherans opened a mission Sunday school in the neighborhood, uh, he attended that. Uh, over time, he migrated over to Presbyterianism, although the church that he embraced and really had a conversion experience was an independent Presbyterian church uh, led by a man named John Chambers. He considered himself Presbyterian, but was not sectarian in his relationships. He had all kinds of both uh, letter writing and friendships and connections with leading Protestants and Catholics and Jewish leaders all over the city and up and down the eastern seaboard. Uh, he cared very much about uh, moral reform and so worked with these uh, various groups and folks to, to try to make a change in the world. Uh, but when you look at him, he did much of his building of his business with his religion in mind yeah. um, as a Protestant Christian. And that led and shaped many of the decisions that he was making as a businessman. Now, part of this is that when he was growing up as a young man, he felt called to the ministry mm. and was really torn uh, by that decision whether to embrace his call to ministry or to become a merchant. And that's a big part of his story is how he ended up answering that question or facing that fork in the road. Sure. How does he, just a kind of another follow-up here. Um, one of the things I was asking as I was reading the book, he starts in kind of working with the YMCA, correct? Mm -hmm. um, and, and this Bethany, is that the independent Presbyterian church? Is that Bethany? That's Bethany is, is the church he, he founds. Right, uh, right. So as a worker uh, for the independent Presbyterian church that he's a part of, right. he does a Sunday school mission himself right. and he founds Bethany. But yes, y, the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, is a huge part of his story. Now, just out of curiosity, is the Bethany church still a church? Is it still there? 
It is, it but is. not the same location. They moved out to the suburbs. Oh, they did. Really interesting. Okay. Yeah, so it's Bethany Collegiate okay. uh, Presbyterian. And then how does he go from being involved in kind of a lay minister with the YMCA, founds a church, and then he kind of opens up this little clothing store. What was it on uh, kind of near Independence Hall, right? How, do, how does he make that quick transition? I mean, that transition from like, hey, I'm in the ministry, I'm doing all these things, and now I'm going to open a clothing store. <laughs> uh, great question. Well, he he's one of these people that you read their life story and it makes you feel tired. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's bouncing around. I'm, yeah. Yeah. So, and especially as a young man and he, he suffered from poor health most of his life. So that's also the surprising uh, part and ultimately why he chose not to go into the ministry because of the demands of parish ministry yeah. he understood uh, would probably damage his health. And uh, that's, it's uh, understandable. I teach in a seminary, so I I get the demands of the parish. And so he, at the same time, he's attending church. At the same time, he's opening this uh, mission Sunday school that ultimately becomes a, what we would call a mega church. It was definitely an institutional church. At the same time as he's the first paid secretary of the Young Men's Christian Association uh, for the Y in North America, in Philadelphia, uh, he also had, uh, in various times, uh, starting when he was about 12 years old, doing various apprenticeships. Yeah. So he was learning about what it meant to be a merchant. He was learning about the, um, the business side of things. And so he takes the money that he earns from the YMCA, and he opens up this dry goods store uh, focusing on men's and boys' clothing yeah. uh, right right before the beginning of the Civil War, within a few weeks of the first uh, shots at mm. Fort Sepner. Yeah. And uh, yes, you're right. It's right down by Independence Hall. That was the main yeah. uh, area of, of shops and things at the time before they, they moved farther down market. Right. So he, go- so he goes from working at a YFCA, the national secretary, to sort of selling ties in Philadelphia, right? I mean, it's a great, yeah, it's a, I can see what you mean by getting tired uh, from his story. Now, you opened the book, Nicole, with this wonderful vignette. So you, you, Dwight L. Moody, some of you are unfamiliar with this guy, the, you know, one of the great kind of evangelists of the age you know, preacher traveling around the country doing these mass revivals. He has this musician with him, uh, singer Ira Sankey. Uh, You start the book with Moody's uh, crusade in a revival in Philadelphia in 1875. And he holds that crusade in a building that I think, is, is it correct? Wanamaker had just purchased the building. He hadn't yet turned it into his department store. That's correct. Yeah, he's in this big building, uh, which maybe you could talk about was a sort of railroad depot of some type, and eventually will become his his department store. And you you start the book this way. Moody and Wanamaker kind of thought a little bit, they were friends, but they kind of thought a little bit differently about the relationship between business and commerce. You know, could you elaborate, like, why are Wanamaker and Dwight L. Moody, while I'm guessing they shared some of the same faith commitments, kind of taking two different paths. Absolutely. Well, they actually met through their work uh, with the YMCA, and there's a lot of common parallels in their biographies. Although Wanamaker, as uh, many 
criticized Moody, felt he was uh, a little uncouth in his speech and his grammar and would criticize him for that, uh, as many did. And at the same time, that wasn't a a barrier. He saw so many connections and gave a lot of money to uh, Moody's enterprises, to the opening of his seminary and Northfield. And that friendship was mutually supportive uh, for most of of the relationship sure. uh, over time, but there was times when they came to misunderstanding and and some difficulties, and right. it was around Wanamaker pursuing this this new business venture. But many of the Protestant leaders had been trying to bring uh, Moody to Philadelphia for years. Was finally able to secure him, and they were looking for a very big space. Uh, the biggest space they could locate in Philadelphia so they could have a revival. They, of course, wanted to outdo the other cities, yeah. uh, the competitive nature. And they heard about this train depot that uh, the railroad was uh, selling off, and they were going to move their depot farther out, in part because this brand-new city hall was going yeah. up in the middle of this this area, and it was cutting off the railroad tracks. So they had this empty building. They sell it to Wanamaker. And, and this is it's this interesting story as a historian trying to untangle what is the, the true story here, because there's the one Wanamaker yeah. tells yeah. with Flourish uh, about how he didn't know that the revival was coming and the businessmen approached him when they found out he owned it. Right. Other people say, oh, he knew and that he wanted the revival there because it would put his new building on the map. Right. And as often these things are, it's, it's uh, I think, a little bit of both, the both yeah, and there. Yeah. Uh, and so that the train depot, he had his successful, actually two locations now in, in Philadelphia. And the train depot, he decided was going to be an experiment. At first, he wanted to gather other people to open additional departments. He didn't want to go it alone. He didn't get any traction with mm-hmm. uh, colleagues. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to have to do this. And so he decided to position this new store in the train depot as a annex of the 1876 Centennial yeah. uh, Great Exhibition there in Philadelphia. Uh, but before all of that happened, this massive religious revival takes place in the, in the space. Uh, and it's a fantastic success. Now, Moody kind of had sort of some moral issues, ethical, Christian, I don't know, issues with with this. What was his critique of sort of Wanamaker's moving into retail, or if you will, or, you know, the, the department store business? Because Moody, right? Moody was a shoe salesman, right? Before he went into, I think, before he went into uh, evangelism. But yeah, what, what were the differences? Where did they kind of clash? Well... And that's, again, the the parallels in the biography. Absolutely. So Booty is a shoe salesman. Wanamaker had been working in these retail stores, men's and uh, boys' uh, everyday wear. And where they diverge is that Moody says yes to his call to ministry and he becomes an evangelist. And Wanamaker says yes to business, but also, and this is a big part of, yeah. of my argument, he also says yes to ministry, but in a very different imagining of what ministry can be right. and that it doesn't have to mean that he's a minister of a church, although he founds a church and he's sure. very, very involved. I felt sorry for the ministers of that congregation, Bethany, but Moody and a lot of Protestants had a deep suspicion of business 
persons who are making a lot of money. Uh, and this is a time of rapid growth and stores and all right. kinds of businesses. It, it feels impersonal. They're getting so big. You, you can't know your boss because you might be one of thousands or tens of thousands of workers. And also the excesses of the money. So you have you're making all this money and you're buying all these things. And a lot of Protestants are taught that that's suspect. Yes, yeah. uh, this means you might not be moral. This means you might drag you off the path of righteousness. And it's something I include in the book, but there's this letter exchange where Moody writes to Wanamaker after the revival and says, it seems to me as if the devil wanted to cheat you out of your crown. Yeah. And I'm afraid you'll lose it the way you're going on. Wow. He thinks you should leave it, leave your business, even though it helped you know, pay for the revivals, even though you're making donations, even though you gave me this space you should give up your business, and that way you can gain your heart and the hearts of the people, and you right. can be reunited with God. Which is kind of interesting, because Moody relied, right, so much upon, like, wealthy Christian kind of philanthropists to keep him going, right? Moody must have seen something in Wanamaker that, you know, was different. It's it's interesting. I think they were truly friends. Yeah, and, yeah. and what happens is Wanamaker is silent, doesn't respond initially to that letter. And so then you get letters that follow afterward coming from Moody's pen where he is worried. And he says, well, you know, I haven't heard from you and I, I hope everything's okay. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Interesting. He, he's concerned. Um, but I think it's out of the friendship and his genuine concern for his right, friend's right. soul. Yeah, yeah. Now, part of Wanamaker's ministry, if you will, right? Or his way of kind of using the department store as a way of ministry. And this is, I think, a major contribution of your work. It's in the building itself, right? So especially the the way the building is constructed and the interior designs and so forth. So you start chapter two off with this wonderful quote from the Princeton historian the, who actually studies, you know, St. Augustine and antiquity, Peter Brown. He says, a building is an argument in stone. Um, I love that quote. Great, great find there. How was the Wanamaker building then for Wanamaker himself, right? An argument in stone. You know, what was the argument that this building was making? So, yes, thank you for noticing that quote. Yeah. Uh, a colleague in grad school who was in that field had said it once to his seminar. And it's one okay. of those things that you're just riveted yeah. in your mind. And it opened my eyes thinking about architecture and and the material expressions of people's religious lives. And here's this building. And so when we talk about the Wanamaker building, we're talking about the 1911 building that mm -hmm. was built in three stages in the very site where the train depot was. Right. And, uh, and this is uh, by the architect is Daniel Burnham. Mm -hmm. He also did Marshall Field's store here in Chicago. He also did uh, the Chicago's Great Exhibition in, yeah. in the white city, so to speak. I was just actually, it's funny. I was just, I was just talking about him today. We were talking about the city beautiful movement um, at the turn of the 20th century. Burnham was very actively involved in that too. But yeah. Yes, absolutely. And so Wanamaker is a part of the city beautiful movement. Right. So he and, and folks like Burnham and those who are part of the city beautiful movement believe that architecture, but also open green spaces can change how people behave. Right. And this is a grave concern about the moral and everyday and ethical behavior of people living in the cities. And as they're crowded in and they're cut off from home and family life, 
that they knew in in often agrarian uh, backgrounds when you know right. they're moving into the cities, they're they're concerned, and that the moral fabric of the the city, let alone individuals, is breaking down. And so Wanamaker believes this, and he believes that a building can change people. And so when he decides to construct this department store, uh, a new one to take over from the old building, which was very haphazard, mm-hmm. all these different structures. He was buying up land uh, as he grew more successful till he owned more than a city block. And he wants this building to have a influence on the city. And now, whether people understand that or experience it is a whole different thing, but he talks about it a lot. So he definitely tries to make certain people understand this in his advertisements and the way he promotes the store, the way he dedicated it. Uh, And when you look at the building, which still stands to this day and Mm -hmm. you can go into it and in the heart of it is still a department store, although the upper floors are now uh, offices, you can experience both the interior architecture and layout, uh, some of it, not all of it, and get the feel of this space that is both grand and to this day, I would argue, awe-inspiring. Yeah with the light and the airiness of the the grand court, but also the fact that there is a enormous organ, this instrument that plays daily in the store, uh, and that thundering sound of this instrument that is associated both with entertainment venues, but also the church. And on the outside with its lines, and he has all this language about what he thinks the store is doing architecturally with its clean lines and its simplicity, that it's about honesty, it's about morality, it's about simplicity. And he does this in contrast to the the new public building, what we call today the city hall, because it is this, you know, French Baroque (laughs) with statues and, and flourishes. And so he, he doesn't name that building, but when he talks about the Wanamaker building, he often compares it in, and wants to say, you know, we're about something different here and you should trust us. And we're about honesty and we're going to change yeah. the city. Tell us a little bit about the interior, especially the artwork. And you talk about it almost like the interior is almost like a museum type feel, right? Absolutely. So he has, like any store, multiple spaces, but there are several spaces that are quite distinctive in the Wanamaker building. One of them, of course, is the Grand Court, which I already alluded to with this huge open atrium that soars up uh, about seven floors and in the old days had this light uh, atrium cap so sunlight could come through filtering down to the, the, the ground floor. You had the mm-hmm. organ, you had marble, it looks very luxe and uh, special. But you also have uh, some concert halls. And then on the upper floors, there's considerable amount of space that is reserved for an art gallery mm. that houses hundreds of paintings that John Wanamaker and his sons are purchasing. Uh, some are copies of what they would call the old masters, mm-hmm. uh, famous paintings. A lot of these old masters' works are often Christian art. And also he's going every year to the Paris salons and buying hundreds, and that's not an exaggeration, hundreds and hundreds of paintings. And he has an art gallery in his homes, both his downtown home on Walnut Street, his home out in the countryside, uh, which is called Lindenhurst. His sons have country homes and city homes and international homes. They're all filled with art. And they also have these art galleries 
he actually has one in the church too, by the way. Mm. And then at the Wanamaker building, this uh, series of floors that expands over time where he has the art displayed. And what's interesting to me is he's not displaying it the same way that the great exhibitions are displaying it. Uh, he's giving more space between the paintings, much what we would experience in the Art Institute mm -hmm. uh, today here in Chicago. When you go to the art gallery, you have one painting with open wall space around yeah. it and a description. This is a lot of the way he's choosing to display his art, whereas you go to the Great Exhibition and it's 15 paintings crowded in a very small amount of space. Uh, and he also has special galleries where he can house his most extraordinary paintings. Uh, he in particular has Mihai Mukashi's uh, two of his paintings that are quite famous that one depicts the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And another one is Jesus on the cross. Mm. And these paintings are in a special reserved area that customers can go into. And it has a reverent tone uh, where they can sit and be with this art that depicts two famous scenes from the New Testament. Now, Wanamaker also has a school. I didn't know this. This is new to me. It has a school associated with the, um, is it actually in the department store? Is that where the classrooms are? Yes. Yeah, tell us a little bit about his cadets, as he calls them. The Wanamaker cadets. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, this was perhaps one of the areas I had the most fun researching uh -huh. and feel that there's still more to be done. But no one really had spoken very much of the Wanamaker cadets. Now, who are they? They are the the young people of the store. Uh, Wanamaker soon began to realize as he was starting to employ hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands, especially during the holiday season around Christmas and, mm -hmm. and other times of the year, that many of his youngest workers and some of them being as young as 12 or 13, the laws were still uh, open to, to letting uh, children as young as this work, that they didn't get to go to school because they were working for him, but the family yeah. needed the money. So he decided to open a school uh, where they would get an education. Now, there's definitely a paternalistic, self-serving right. side to this because he decided what the best education was. And there was a lot of moral framework mm -hmm. uh, from his uh, Presbyterian background that he's trying to instill. He thinks that the parents might not be giving them what they, they need in that area. And then also the classes are to really help them in their work in the store. And so he's training the next generation of Wanamaker employees. Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely those elements. But you do find a lot of the folks who go through the program talking about how grateful they are and that they got the education because of Wanamaker. He first starts the program for the youngest boys. These are often before they had cash registers. You had to run the receipt to the cash counter and back. And so you would have... <laughs> Uh, these young boys doing it. Uh, you'd also have young girls dusting and helping in the stock room. Some stores also had the girls as, as cash runners. But Wanamaker started the program for the boys, and pretty soon uh, older young men of the store said, well, we'd like to take classes. We didn't get an education either. And then you have the young women demanding. And so he slowly starts expanding the program. By far, the majority of his workers uh, are white. Right. Uh, he does employ approximately 300 African-American workers, and he does offer education opportunities, especially music programs and some different kinds of classes, but it's never to the level right. for his white workers. 
so I, I do want to point that out. No, definitely. In the Wanamaker cadets, uh, they are given uniforms and they are taught both physical education, but also a part of the program is much like the Boy Scouts of the time. It's using this military framework to deliver the education and also do the physical education. He opens a summer camp on the Jersey Shore to give them fresh air. And so they have little camps. I mean, it looks Mm -hmm. like the Boy Scouts and they're in their uniforms and they're doing formation. And then they become part of the a walking advertisement for the store because they are used in public festivals in a weekly basis where the watermaker cadets and this is is girl bands and and young men marching bands or or uh, orchestras and they're playing music they're marching in they're making presentations and they are dressed in the watermaker cadet uniform uh so they're advertisement both for the store and what watermaker is doing for them is there anything left of that? Did you go visit? I'm just curious. Did you visit that spot on the Jersey Shore? I used to spend a lot of time as a kid at Seaside Heights, which was right near Island Heights on the other side of the kind of bay there. Is there anything left from that camp? Is it still there? When I started writing this and and spending my time on the research, yes, there was the main building that was falling down and needs to be torn down, but it's full of asbestos. And it might be gone by now. Because uh, when I first started research on Wanamaker, I think it was 2006. Mm-hmm. So that was some time ago. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, now, a couple kind of final questions here, kind of larger kind of interpretive questions about your story that you tell in this book. Um, you know, Wanamaker is a very rich man. He's very wealthy. Uh, he's also deeply Christian, deeply Presbyterian, deeply religious, is this a story about sort of the roots of the prosperity kind of gospel? I know he's friends with Russell Conwell, who many people connect as well to a kind of prosperity. Uh, what was his book? Acres of Diamonds, right? Wealth is a sign of um, spirituality. Um, help me sort that out. You know, is this a prosperity gospel story? Is it something different? You know, how do you navigate that? It's such an interesting question, John. It was something that I was very interested if there was a connection, because when I would read how Wanamaker would talk about his wealth and his religious life and the connection of the two, I thought, this is prosperity gospel. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Russell Conwell, this uh, lawyer who became a Baptist minister, who's famous for giving this lecture called Acres of Diamonds, all across the Chautauqua circuit, all across the country, recordings, huge audiences that tells you that uh, it's okay to make money, and money is is good, and it's a sign of God's blessing, and that also you don't necessarily have to go off and find your wealth, that it's often right uh, where you're at if you only open your eyes to find it and look around. Uh, So this is classic beginnings of, of the prosperity gospel, and it was that moment when I started finding the evidence that Oh my goodness, they're friends. Yeah. And Conwell, by the way, uh, founder of Temple University, right? You know, yes. before it's a public, yeah, it's a Christian kind of institution. Absolutely. And, and why I was looking for the evidence is Conwell, after giving these speeches, he settles down at Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia, where he starts doing a small education program because some workers who attend the church uh, say, I, I'd like some more education. And he starts 
this tutoring of this one young man who comes to him and he brings a friend and soon the minister's office can't hold the people, the basement of the church can't hold the people, and then he opens, as you said, Temple University. So they're both in Philadelphia. They're both movers and shakers. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it's more than just an acquaintance or sitting on the same board or committee. They're friends. And so when when Conwell has a big anniversary for the delivering of Acres of Diamonds in the carriage, riding along the parade route to his uh, lectern where he's going to give the speech for, I think, the 6,000th time (laughs) – is John Wanamaker. And when he gives it over a radio station, it's at John Wanamaker's radio station that's on top of the department store. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this was this big aha moment of, okay, this is real. And they are thinking along the same lines, uh, in part because they're in the the same soup uh, in this group of folks who are having similar thoughts and shifting previous held ideas around money and wealth and business that has a positive understanding of it for Christianity, Protestantism in particular. Yeah. Um, Drew's telling me here that our time's about up. I want to ask you one more question, Nicole, and uh, kind of make some some sort of continuity, you know, connect with the present. Maybe. We'll see how you answer. You know, where do you see the legacy of Wanamaker's attempts here to infuse Protestantism and consumer capitalism today? Are there any kind of businesses or Christian organizations that kind of follow in the stead of what Wanamaker tried to do in the 20th century? I think the answer is yes. Uh, There's quite a few, actually. Yeah. And one way to answer that is if you look at different businesses that quite publicly talk about uh, and advertise their connections to Christianity or their their religious uh, background— and so everything from Walmart and the evangelical tradition yep. to uh, Chick-fil-A yep. to Interstate Battery. One of the things that I don't get to talk about and I, and I want to lift up is this whole wave of the certified B Corps. So businesses that are, as they say, uh, quoting from the uh, balance of purpose and profit, mm-hmm. they want to have a positive impact yeah. on the world. When you think of Warby and Parker, when you look up the list, there's ones that you may not even thought about or Everlane who are trying to do ethical fashion okay. uh, by paying attention to their sourcing yeah. of both materials and the and the how the workers are treated in the factories. Which would be coming more kind of from the left rather than, you know, Chick-fil-A and others that are Hobby Lobby, right? It's coming from the kind of right side of the political spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so so everyone automatically, when they read about Wanamaker, they think Hobby Lobby, they, they, they think uh, Chick-fil-A. Uh, or uh, even uh, David Mealman, uh, the founder of JetBlue, talking mm. about the way that he wanted his employees to do service, he drew from his experiences of doing his uh, Mormon missionary trip when he was a young man. If you read in some of these companies, they talk about their Buddhist values. Yeah. Others, it's Christian. Um, others, there's no talk of religion at all, but that's they just think it's the moral and ethical right. thing to do. And so that's a part of the mix. It's It's happening in all kinds of ways today, both, as you said, the whole spectrum, but the right people immediately think about yeah, yeah. all the way to these businesses that you might associate with the left. And I'm imagining, Nicole, that very few of these businesses know about someone like Wanamaker and that they have not invented the wheel, right? <laughs> that this has been going on for a while, as your book uh, rightly shows. 
Yes, yes. And we sometimes talk about people as if they're able to compartmentalize parts of their lives. And uh, he doesn't even attempt to do that. He's quite vocal that the two are intermixed, his religious life with his business life. Uh, And that's something he wears on his sleeve with pride. Now, of course, this is something he's also criticized for. Sure, sure. Well, our guest today was Nicole Kirk. Nicole, where can we find more about you and your work if people want to follow you or learn more about what you're doing? Uh, thanks, John. I have a website, NicoleKirk.com, and my Twitter handle is at Prof in Chicago, or you can look through my name and follow me there on Twitter. Follow her on Twitter and go out and buy a copy of Wanamaker's Temple, Business of Religion in an Iconic Department Store, out with NYU Press 2018. Thanks so much for your time, Nicole. This is a great conversation. We enjoyed it. Thanks, John. I very much enjoyed it myself. Thank you. I have to say, John, this is, this was a really interesting interview for me to listen to as one of your former students, right? When I was a student here at Messiah, uh, you were one of the first people who kind of exposed me to a, a Christian critique of capitalism. Is that right? You can probably pull this quotation right out. Uh, something that Pope John Paul II used to say about capitalism. Savage capitalism. Yes. Yeah. Right. I still remember as a, you know 18, 19-year-old student being, oh, there, there are other ways to think about Christianity in the marketplace yeah. uh, than kind of my post-Reagan year upbringing of, of uh, you know, deep connection between Christianity and, and conservative capitalism. That's interesting, Drew, because you were pretty liberal. I, I was. I think you no, would have already I, thought about certain critiques of capitalism. I, I guess I had thought about them, but I thought I was being much more rebellious than I think I was. But instead, yeah. I was actually, uh, you know, kind of coming into a, a strand of Christian thinking that, you know, obviously now that I've grown yeah. as, a, as a historian, I see is, is very robust. But, you know, now as a collaborator, as a co-conspirator of yours, you know, seeing this interview and kind of being a fly on the wall, that was, was an interesting experience. Yeah, me. Wanamaker is just, you know, like I said, I, I talked about this in the intro uh, when we were bantering back and forth, you know, uh, this leech book on the land of desire, right? I, I tend to be pretty moderate sort of politically. You know, I have some conservative views. I'm pretty progressive on sort of certain economic issues. But um, when I read Leach's Land of Desire, you know, there's certain books that kind of transform you and, and make you think about things in different ways. And just thinking about capitalism as the manufacturing of desire, mm-hmm. right, through advertising and through materialism and through the happiness, right? It's a new kind of pursuit of happiness, and certainly Wanamaker is, and Russell Conwell and others kind of from this prosperity kind of gospel, you know, are taking this sort of baptizing capitalism as a spiritual kind of ideal, right? And bringing these two together very seamlessly. I mean, I think the Quakers, you know, a lot of people turn to the Quakers today for kind of social justice critiques of capitalism. And that's just one side of Quakerism. Most of those Philadelphia Quakers that founded Pennsylvania were all about pocketing some money. These were not like the, the radical Quakers up in new England that were going naked as a sign and getting hung in Boston commons. Right. right? I mean, these were people trying to construct a society and, and very much uh, interested in wealth as much as they were cultivating the inner light. So I think there's a, there's a continuity there. I did my master's thesis with Jean Soderlund and, and she writes a lot about the complicated and intertwined history of uh, Quakerism and the slave trade, and as you know, kind of pulling apart the much more simple 
narrative yeah. that says, oh, the, the roots of abolitionism right. can be traced to Quakerism. Well, also the roots of the transatlantic slave trade right. can also be linked to Quakerism. And this episode really has held together nicely, I think, chronologically, because, you know, I tried to talk about how Wanamaker came out of a very Philadelphia idea, right? Merging religion and the marketplace or the economy. And then we had uh, Nicole talking about Wanamaker, you know, and the way he does this. And then I love that the way she answered the last question, kind of gesturing forward to these kind of contemporary examples of businesses sort of trying to seamlessly integrate religious belief and kind of the marketplace. Yeah. Living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I think there's a great example of that. I mean, a small shop called the Lancaster Sweet Shop has kind of become famous locally as a place that as part of its mission, it's there to make money, but part of its mission has chosen to only hire uh, refugees, right? And, and you know, we, we asked the question at the top of the episode, and I think she does a great job of answering it with a much more complicated answer than our simple question of, is, is this just the, the antecedent of Chick-fil-A and, and Hobby Lobby and, and a one particular brand? Yeah. That, use that word there, brand right, of, right. Of, of the melding of, of religion and business. But, you know, the example of Tom's Shoes and, you know, there's other kind of more progressive right. kind of, and some that are not even Christian, yeah. right, that bring together, you know, religion and business and so forth. So I love the way she answered that, sort of you know, really nuancing it, complicating it. Uh, this is a great episode. I, I'm really also fascinated by her upcoming book about railroads. Yeah. We'll have to get her on no, again. No, she's definitely... Uh, um, when that book comes out. Doing that kind of work on on religion and and its connection to the many many institutions of of American history. But, yeah, and um, you know, I mentioned some of those works too in the intro. This is a really hot topic right now in American religious history: the connection between kind of the marketplace and capitalism and Christianity. Well, Drew, another episode in the books. Episode fifty one is in the books. Shout along. Um, thanks for joining me as always, and may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast is brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsors Jennings College Consulting, Discovering the Right College Fit for Your Future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Nicole Kirk. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I'm your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host, as always, is John Fiat.